Mother will always be the bravest, least ordinary, most difficult, utterly challenging career that anyone ever hopes to lay claim to. While others might hear, diaper changer, food maker, laundry doer, carpooler, bottle washer, sweatpants wear, life on hold, want to be doing anything else, woman. The truth is, whether it feels like it some days or not, you are in fact a shelter from the storm. You are a cape of good hope. You are a warrior who will do battle for your children's hearts, souls, attention, innocence, education, and memories. Go to battle, my friends. This is your time. We will hold strong on either side of you. We will pray for those bottles through the dark watches of the night. And when doubt comes and children break, when adults fail them, and when they push and push as hard against us as the day we deliver them into this world, we will not be broken. We may ache and see cracks tear through our hearts. But we will get up again tomorrow and we will load the clothes and the words that need to be said again and again and again. And when the world tries to claw at them, to break them, to smash the beauty in them, may our walls hold true. May the lessons we've told the truths we've lived, the life we've spoken into them come back easily, predictably, with wash and repeat ease. Kingdom business, Jesus work, this shaping of souls, this raising tiny humans. There are those that say this is ordinary. Don't buy it for a second. Mighty you are mighty because you, Mother. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11, Matthew chapter 11. And we want everybody to have a, a Bible to follow along. So these brothers will come forward. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at the passage in Matthew 11. We take a break today from the series that we are in in the opening chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in order to have a message centered on the role of motherhood, but also directed toward women in general. It's my hope that as we point to our hope in the gospel, that will be a help to all of us, men, women, and children. I'm amazed by the many roles that women are often expected to play in the home. The endless to-do list for a woman includes household chores and errands, but for many it also includes help with homework, being a counselor, a chef, a nurse, an interior designer, an administrator, a recreational director, a gardener, a purchasing agent, a financial planner, a friend, a lover, and on it goes. Now, I got tired just writing and thinking about all of that. How much more the precious ladies who are expected to meet these many demands, and some while juggling a job outside the home as well. And add to all of that the fact that women tend to brood about things, lots of things, 
all at the same time. So that while they're doing all those tasks, their minds are going in a hundred directions. Now, I say that, but those smarter than me say that women tend in that direction as well. The chair of the psychology department at Yale University, Susan Nolan Hoeksema, has written a book called Women Who Think Too Much, How to Break Free from Overthinking and Reclaim Your Life. And in it, she gives reasons why ladies are prone to brooding and overthinking. She says women have more to think about, especially today with perhaps a career outside the home and perhaps, and all too often, little help inside the home. And they have more to think about and less power to do anything about the things that they would like to change. And so they think and think and think and often talk and talk and talk which, depending on who it is they're trying to change, may become nag and nag and nag. In fact, I think this is one reason our ladies are told in Scripture to win their husbands over, the Bible says, without words. Because women's vulnerability and sometimes powerlessness means that they'll naturally resort to the one thing that they can do, talk and try to persuade. And so one reason that women tend to overthink is they have more to think about and less to do, power to do what they would like to do in what they're thinking about. But another is this. Women tend to network and relate with more people to think about. In fact, in the book, Hoxima says this, women are more likely than men to cross a line between being emotionally connected with others and being emotionally over-involved with others. These women base their self-esteem and well-being too much on what others think of them and how their relationships are going. So yet another thing to think about. And then here's another. Women are naturally and socially conditioned to be more emotional. Their parents are more likely to talk with them in emotional terms than with their brothers if they have them. And that conditions girls to emotional thinking. And connected with number two, that is the relationships women emote with each other. And so reinforce this tendency. And so it's no wonder then that you, dear ladies, are often overwhelmed because you are overworked and sometimes overthinking. How can you find internal rest in the midst of all of these demands and challenges? Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to you this day as each Lord's Day, asking for the help that only you can give. We ask you to take the truth of the scriptures that we are going to see today. And we ask you to open our hearts by your spirit, grant us clarity of thinking, so that we can leave here rejoicing in the good news of the gospel and better equipped to bring glory to you in the task that you have assigned to each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've all heard it said that a woman's work is never done. Now, why do we say that? Well, I think it has to do with what I say 
in the first point of the outline that we have for you that's at the back of your program. So I invite you to take a look at that. In fact, I've titled the message, A Woman's Work. And the first point I'd like to elaborate on is the nature of a woman's work. The nature of a woman's work. First of all, I want you to see that by its very nature, the work that most women are called to do is exhausting. A woman's work is exhausting. It's exhausting because there's the sheer volume of the work to be done, as I've listed. And the list I gave is, of course, only partial. But there's also the fact that women generally have less stamina and energy than men and thus make the enormous amount of work all the more exhausting. I'm blessed to have Kim as the wife and mother of our girls and the domestic engineer in our home. Now, of course, I don't know what goes on in other homes, so I can't say there's no one who does what she does as well as she does it. But I can say with great confidence there cannot possibly be anyone who does it better. I'm often amazed at all that Kim is able to accomplish in the many roles that have been assigned to her. And that she's still willing to make time for others to counsel and to encourage them. She babysits two of her great nieces five days a week. Makes nearly all arrangements at home so that the girls and I are able to have what we need makes lists of things that need to be done, and does most of them. Those lists go from immediate needs to midterm and future objectives. And she does all of this with amazing grace and without ever a complaint. But at the end of the day, or at the end of an especially long list of tasks, she has two phrases that she uses. I'm dead. (laughs) And the other one is, I'm beat. And I combine those to call her a deadbeat. Now, in fact, she's anything but. And the Bible says this about how husbands should treat their wives. Husbands, treat your wives with respect as the, notice, weaker partner. Now, that phrase, weaker partner, means a number of things, but it certainly includes being physically weaker. We have lots of examples of our accommodation to that fact in society. One of those is on the golf course. So if you've been on a golf course and you've ever teed off, you know that there's a, there are at least two tee spots at each hole, one for the men and one for the women. And the women's, uh, the, the women's tee is usually about 50 yards or so closer to the hole, so in effect the women get a head start. Now, I, I have hit a ball from the ladies' tee, and here's why. Because usually I start at the men's tee, but my ball only goes as far as the women's tee. (laughs) Then I have to hit it again. Now, the fact that women are naturally weaker physically makes it all the more astounding that dedicated women like Kim accomplish all that they do. The volume of work and the relative weakness of the worker conspire to make a woman's work exhausting. And then if a woman works outside the home, she still has to contend with the biblical requirements to make her home her headquarters and her first commitment. Paul wrote of family relationships in Titus chapter 2. And here's one of the things he says. Younger women are to be taught to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, and notice, to be busy at home. 
And so even if a woman has a job outside the home, she still has that impinging upon her. Now, let me explain this phrase that I'm using, a woman's work. I do not mean that only a woman can do domestic work. And especially if a woman works outside the home, it does not mean that a self-centered husband has warrant to say, I don't do that, it's woman's work. I've chosen this title for this message, and I've included it in the points of the sermon simply to describe what's commonly referred to as woman's work. Not to say, not to say that men cannot or should not engage in those things. But the nature, then, of a woman's work includes the fact that it's exhausting. But secondly, I say in your outline, it's unending. A woman's work is unending. You see, domestic work is not generally project work. In a project, you do it, and when the project's done, you can file it under completed. But in domestic work, laundry piles up, it gets washed, it gets folded, and then it piles up again. Meals have to be planned and prepared. Cleaning must be done And all that will need to be done the next day or perhaps even later in the same day. And so women know better than most the reality of Parkinson's law. The amount of work expands so as to fill the time available. The nature of a woman's work is that it's exhausting. In domestic work, it's unending. And then thirdly, woman's work is voluntary. It's voluntary. Just as the nature of domestic work is not like a project with a start and an end, so also the payoff of a woman's work is different than when you're on a payroll. doesn't mean that domestic work is not worth a paycheck, just that it's not the nature of the work to be paid monetarily. In fact, a few years ago, there was a study done of how much it would actually cost to pay a housewife for the work that she does. Study said this, a full-time stay-at-home mother would earn $134,121 a year if paid for all her work, an amount similar to a top U.S. ad executive, a marketing director, or a judge. A mother who works outside the home would earn an extra $85,876 annually on top of her actual wages for the work she does at home, according to a study by Waltham, Massachusetts-based compensation experts, salary.com. To reach the projected pay figures, the survey calculated the earning power of the 10 jobs respondents said most closely comprise a mother's role. Housekeeper, daycare teacher, cook, computer operator, laundry machine operator, janitor, facilities manager, van driver, chief executive, and psychologist. The nature of a woman's work is that it's exhausting It's not project work, so it keeps coming and keeps piling up. It's unending. And it's not compensated monetarily at the end of the week or at the end of the month. And so it's voluntary. Now, what does any of that have to do with the gospel and with the Bible and the passage that we read from Matthew 11? Well, it has to do with how, ladies in particular, if you're not very careful, you will add to your work and your stress, and to your exhaustion by doing your work in your own strength. And not only doing your assigned work, but taking on additional work that is outside of your control. And succumbing to that temptation has left many of you ladies drained physically, but also emotionally and spiritually as well. And the extent to which you're 
already enormous work has become an impossible burden depends in part on whether you are what Paul Tripp calls God's vacationer or God's mini-messiah, M-I-N-I, small messiah. Now, here's what he means by that. There are some people who are just irresponsible, male and female, boys and girls, and they need to be taught responsibility. He calls those people God's vacationer. The idea is that God is in control. I live under grace. I can't live under a bunch of rules. That will drive me crazy. I can't, I, I, I fail at most of what I do before God anyway. And so I'm kind of God's vacationer. Let God take care of it. But then there are other people who are God's mini Messiah. And it's been my experience that most of the ladies with whom I am acquainted, godly women who want to do the right thing, fall under this other category of being a mini Messiah. That is, they're not God's vacationer. They're not irresponsible. They are hyper-responsible. Taking on to themselves things that God has not assigned and that God does not expect. And as a result, piling on to the nature of a woman's work which is already, without you adding any of that, exhausting and unending. You see, our tendency is to see ourselves as more capable than we are. Spiritually capable first, and then physically as well. We take on too much, and we get down when we can't do it all, seeing ourselves as a failure who just can't get the job done. But the gospel tells us, it tells all of us, we can't. Get the job done. Did you know that's the beginning of the good news? The recognition that you can't get the job done. And the good news, the gospel, rebukes our prideful tendency to think that we can. And that's what Jesus was facing when he spoke those words at the end of Matthew chapter 11. When he said, come to me, all of you who are burdened and who are weary, and I will give you rest. What he was facing was centuries of a misapplication of the law that God had given to his people. Now, most of you know that your Bible is divided into two major sections. The first section called the Old Testament, and the second section, the, the New Testament. Matthew, the book from which we read, is the first book in the New Testament. But there were centuries of teaching and practice that preceded the book of Matthew, and the coming of Jesus, God's Son, to earth. And those centuries of teaching and practice were centered upon the law that God had given to his people. Through Moses, the law had as one of its purposes to show us our sin because we could not keep those rules. We could not keep that law. And so in your New Testament, the Bible seeks to correct this misunderstanding that had developed over centuries that somehow we were capable of doing what it is that God demanded. So Romans chapter 7 says this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. That is, implying that one of the purposes for the law is to show us our sin and thus our inability to keep that very law. But more explicitly in Romans chapter 3, the Bible says no one will be declared righteous in God's sight By the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And by the time of Jesus, after centuries of practicing the law and in sinful pride, thinking that people, humanity, apart from God, could attain to some measure of keeping God's law, Jesus had to correct that. 
And Jesus corrects that by saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, because you have been mistaught the idea that you can do these things, that you can do it. One author says this, the law was not meant to give us the power of reconciling with God. Rather, it's a tool that's used to point us to our need for Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's used to show us our utterly wicked sin and misery, to show us how there's no way for us to enter heaven by our own works, that we are not able to save ourselves simply by trying to do what's right. The law's purpose is to show us that we must rely on Christ. And this reliance is a complete reliance. Not just a reliance to get us back on track with God, but a reliance upon Christ in every area of our lives, every day of our lives. So this law of God was never meant to be a tool to help us pull ourselves up to heaven by our own bootstraps. It was meant to turn us away from ourselves, to get us to stop looking inward and to start looking upward for the answer to our sinful state. We are such a self-centered people that God must first turn us away from ourselves and our own efforts before we can ever turn to Christ and find salvation. This was one of the main then tasks of the Lord Jesus when God the Son came to earth was to correct this misunderstanding about the purpose for God's law. God's law was not a way to heaven for anybody because there wasn't nobody who could keep it. Now, stay with me. I'm going to try to show application, ladies, to your to-do list before we end. But Jesus had a number then of encounters where he had to confront this degeneration of the law into a means of self-righteousness. In one instance, in Luke chapter 18, the Bible says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that is an extremely religious guy, and the other a tax collector, that is a social outcast. And Jesus says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is Jesus correcting the religious and spiritual activism of the religious leaders and what they had taught to the people. God has given us a to-do list, and now it's on you to keep it. And Jesus is saying, ain't nobody who can keep it. And so you must throw yourself on the mercy of God, and only those who throw themselves on the mercy of God will receive such mercy. Jesus goes on in that story to say, which of these men went away justified, declared righteous before God? It was this lowly tax collector. The 17th century Baptist preacher John Bunyan is credited with writing, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, the law commands, but it does not give the ability to carry out what it commands. But in the good news of the gospel, it's far better news because it bids us to fly and it gives us the wings to do so. Now, how does the gospel do that? The gospel does that in this amazing doctrine that the Bible teaches called justification. 
justification. We're going to see that word in just a bit. Many of you are familiar with it. But this word justification, as used in your New Testament, means this, to be, cla- to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous in the case of our New Testament before God the righteous judge. We're declared by him to be right and to have right standing before him, even though we remain sinners. So God knows I can't get it done, but somehow he declares it's been done. Now, how does he do that? Here's what the Bible says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So all of that stuff in the first part of your Bible all pointed toward this righteousness from God. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And all are justified freely by his grace. By his grace, through no merit of our own, we're going to see in a moment through no work of our own, God declares us to be before him righteous, even though, in fact, we are not. And he does that, the Bible tells us, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Blessed is the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Then the passage goes on to say this. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, how does God do this? How does God just look at me, look at you, because I trust, because I believe, the passages say, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ... How is it that God just looks at that and says, I'm going to credit, I'm going to count, I'm going to declare righteousness to Ken Brown even though he's not? How does God do that? Here's how. Because what I am incapable of accomplishing, Jesus Christ accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. And God counts, God credits, God declares on the basis of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, he declares me to be righteous before him. And that's why Romans chapter 4 says this, he, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins, but was raised to life, now notice that last phrase, for our justification. Now how is his resurrection, how does the fact that three days after Jesus was crucified, That he was raised from the dead. How does that relate to me being justified? Remember what that is. Being declared righteous. Here's how. Because the resurrection of Jesus was accomplished. When God the Father looked at the totality of the life and obedient death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said in effect, well done. I receive this. It has been done completely by the son that I sent to accomplish this work. And now by raising him from the dead, I, God the Father, am saying that the work of the son has been accepted by me, God the Father. And that's how he's raised for our justification. And because the Father accepted the work of Jesus, now the Father can accept the work of Jesus on your behalf. And on my behalf, declaring me to be righteous. So here's what Ephesians 1 says. 
He hath accepted us in the beloved. He, God, has accepted us in Jesus. Ladies and men, boys and girls, your acceptance is not based upon your performance. And to the extent that you believe that your acceptance by God is based upon how well you perform, you will forever be the overthinking, overworked, and overwhelmed woman. And we preachers very often don't help you with this. Because we tend to preach from the imperatives of the Bible And we don't root those as often as we should in the indicatives of the Bible. Now you say, you know, Pastor, I was just thinking about that myself. You preach from the imperatives rather than the indicatives. The truth is I have no earthly idea what you just said. Well, here's what I mean. The letters of your New Testament are often written in two sections. The first section is a teaching section. In the Greek language in which your New Testament was written, the verbs in that first section are all in the indicative mood, it's called. That is, there there are statements that indicate who we are before God and what our standing is before God. And then based upon that foundational section, then it moves to another section, a, a teaching section, an application section. And the verbs in that section are mostly in what's called the imperative mood. These are things now you should do based upon who you are. But if we pastors preach mostly from the this is what you're supposed to do section without rooting that in the this is who you are section, then people will get the same idea that folks had at the time Jesus came. God has given me a to-do list and it's up to me to perform. And so we preach from the imperatives apart from the indicatives. Or we make statements like, you know, the greatest ability is dependability. Success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Do right until the stars fall. We make all these kinds of statements to just tell people, be better, be more, be like. And we become overwhelmed. But Jesus says to people who had adopted that kind of mindset, who've been badgered with that kind of an approach, he says in Matthew 11, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble and hearted. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the reason in those two verses that Jesus has to assure them that I am gentle and I'm humble of heart is because he has just said in the prior verse, in verse 27, he has declared his absolute authority over all persons and all things. And so we might tend to think that this one with all authority is going to be a harsh judge. Jesus says, I'm anything but. And I offer my work to you because you can't do the work. The nature of a woman's work is that it's exhausting and unending and voluntary. Now, in your outline. In contrast to the general nature of a woman's work, here's the nature of a Christian woman's work. There's the nature of a woman's work in general, and all of those things that I mentioned about it being exhausting and unending and voluntary, they all still hold true. But in contrast to the way 
women apart from the gospel pursue their work, there's the nature of a Christian woman's work. And a Christian woman's work is restful. Is restful. It's restful. Now, you ladies are saying, Pastor, you don't have my to-do list. And I'm not saying that your to-do list gets shorter, although in just a moment we'll talk about that. It may or may not get shorter. I'm not saying that physically you won't be a deadbeat like my wife is. I'm not saying that physically you won't be drained. Of course, that's what happens when you have a lot to do and you are weaker physically. But as a Christian woman approaches that work, she does not add to the exhaustion and add to the difficulty of that work by going at it in her own strength and seeking to please God and to please others by her performance. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, has said, it's only in the gospel that you get the verdict before the performance. God's already rendered the verdict on you. And you get it before the performance. So you're not performing to get the verdict. You perform because you're grateful for the verdict that God has given. And in that now, you can rest rather than think about all the negative things that result if I perform for the verdict. Oh, man. I mean, everything depends on my performance. So now I've got to do things like cover when I don't get it done, maybe lie, maybe deceive. Or if I do get it done, brag. Or try to compare myself. Or buckle under the the pressure because I create more pressure for myself. When I say a Christian woman's work is restful, I mean that if we understand the gospel, ladies and men, that we will find rest from things like perfectionism. There should not be a person in this room, if you understand a modicum of the gospel, that believes for a moment that perfectionism is a goal to be attained for you. The gospel, the good news, has already told, started with the bad news. You're far from perfect. (laughs) And the sooner you own that, the more restful you will be. But if you're one of those ladies, and ladies, this is your day for me to pick on you. So if you're one of those ladies who thinks that before we can have people over, everything's got to be perfect. Or when we go to church, the only way we can go to church is the kids have to be dressed perfect. And everything's got to look perfect. And my mind will only be settled if it's perfect. Then you have failed to appropriate the good news, the blessed news. That even though you are far from perfect, you are accepted by the one who matters most in the Lord Jesus Christ. It offers you rest from perfectionism. And in turn, it offers you rest then from guilt. Self-induced guilt. Now, maybe you've got a husband who's a tyrant and unappreciative and disobedient to the, to the Lord God that he claims to serve. Ladies, I encourage you to have your men here on Father's Day because I intend to speak to the men very directly. And so when I say rest from guilt, that, may, that, that rest from guilt may have to be in spite of your husband. What a sad thing. 
husbands, if we heap guilt on our wives, because things are not as we demand them to be. But ladies, you can still have that rest from guilt because God Almighty has said, what I want from you is to for you to carry out your work, your blessed work as a mother, as a wife, as a woman. I want you to carry that out in the power that I provide by my spirit. And then you're to feel no guilt about what does not get accomplished. You'll get rest from perfectionism. You'll get rest from guilt. You'll get rest from worry. Oh. Ladies, would you like to have rest from worry? Rest from worry because I'm accepted in the beloved. And my assignment is simply to accomplish what God has given me with the power that God provides and no more. The gospel gives comfort as I work, not instead of my work. I'm not God's vacationer. I still work. But the gospel gives me comfort and respite from worry as I work. That's why the hymn writer was right to say, Lord... Turn my strivings into works of grace. Rather than me striving in my own strength, turn those into works of your grace. A Christian woman's work is restful. And a Christian woman's work, I say secondly, is limited. Limited. You see, unlike in the first part of your outline, where I said a Christian's woman's work is exhausting, a Christian woman's work... Or the nature of a woman's work is that it's exhausting. A Christian's woman's work is restful. And unlike the general nature of a woman's work that's unending, a Christian woman's work is limited. You see, I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to be all things to all people. And in fact, if I try to be all things to all people, then I am saying to God, I don't trust you to do the things that I'm not able to do. And a Christian woman understands that she has a limited role. She is not God's mini Messiah. I do not have to deal with what I cannot control. Oh, man. Ladies, you can't control what your husband does or becomes. Did you know that? And the sooner you rest in the fact that an almighty God can... And you pray to him to do what only he can do. And you rest in him to do what only he can do. Then you will stop badgering and seeking to win with words. In contradiction of what 1 Peter 3 says. A Christian woman's work is restful and limited. And lastly, a Christian woman's work is rewarded. Rewarded. Unlike the nature of a woman's work in general, in which it's voluntary and there's no compensation, a Christian woman's work is, in fact, rewarded. Now, it's not monetarily rewarded. If it were, we would all go bankrupt because we'd owe you $134,000 for the stuff that you do. So it's not rewarded that way, but it's rewarded in spiritual peace of mind and in rest. And in the pleasure, in the pleasure of God your Father. Now hear this, ladies. God is not merely pleased in what you accomplish. God is pleased when you rest in Him, even with what you cannot accomplish. 
Let me say again. God is not merely pleased with what you accomplish. God is pleased when you rest in him with what you're not able to accomplish. And you will have that reward of pleasing God by resting in him and trusting him with what you're not able to do. Now, with all this resting in God, you know, how do I keep from becoming God's vacationer? And there are some people who are teaching today a doctrine that we have to be very careful of, I believe. There are many people who are focused on a gospel-centered approach to living, which we certainly should pursue. But I'm afraid it's a truncated approach to gospel-centered living. And we don't want a truncated gospel-centered life, but a truly gospel-centered life. And here's how it becomes truncated. Instead of focusing on the imperatives that I talked about earlier, they ignore the imperatives. And they focus only on the indicatives. And they say, this is who you are in Jesus. And you'll ne- they say things like this, you'll never be more pleasing to God than you are right now. Well, hold the phone for just a moment on that. Because Colossians chapter 1 says this. We continually ask God that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and notice, please him in every way. So the idea that I can please God with what I do is thoroughly biblical. And conversely then, I can displease God. The Bible says as well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our goal to please him. But as I've said, ladies, you can please God by resting in him for the things that you're not able to do, not by simply accomplishing everything that you think you have to do. And further, you can please God in your response to his displeasure. Being hurt that you failed to live up to your calling, but responding with the gospel. Thanks be to God that despite the fact that I can't do it and that I am a sinner and that I am a failure. Thanks be to God that I'm accepted in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by responding that way, you please God even when we cause his displeasure. My failure... And your failure should always remind us of Jesus' success. And ladies, that's how a Christian woman's work can be restful and limited and indeed rewarded. Jesus had seven sayings from the cross as he hung on the cross. The last of those is in John chapter 19. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. Dear friend who loves the good news of the gospel. Dear lady who's overwhelmed and overthinking and overworked. The good news of the gospel has at its heart these three words. It is finished. And when your husband tells you or when the world tells you and when you tell yourself a woman's work is never done. Jesus says it is finished. Thanks be to God. Come to me and find rest. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, in your outline, a Christian's woman's work is always done. Why? Because Jesus has done the most important work. And even in my failure, and even in my sin, I can rest in the work that God the Son has accomplished on my behalf. Now, ladies, what do you do going forward? 
One of the things that I urge you to do, ladies, and men, I encourage you to encourage your ladies to do, is avail yourself of the resources that God has provided all around you for you to regularly be reminded of the gift that you have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So that you don't become overwhelmed as God's activist and God's mini-Messiah with the to-do list that you have. Now, one way for you to do that is to be around godly women, other godly women, other struggling women. And I'm thankful to the Lord that he has allowed us, just in the last few months, to start in earnest our women's ministry at CBC. Tomorrow, there are going to be ladies gathering at 10 a.m. and at 7 in the evening. Two different times for the same thing. They're going to have fellowship together, but they're going to discuss a couple of chapters out of a book that emphasizes the very kinds of thing that I've been talking to you about. You can purchase that book in our resource center before you leave today. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to be with women who have the same struggles that you do so that they can encourage you to walk in the light of the gospel. And then finally, we have a gift for you before you leave today. We have tables set up at this exit and at the main exit We have two books, one called Gospel Meditations for Women. I believe we gave that book away uh, uh, some time ago, so some of you may already have that. Therefore, we have a second book called Gospel Meditations on Prayer. You're welcome to take either of those, and that is for all of our ladies. Whether you're a mother or not, we want our ladies to have that. Let's bow before the Lord now and ask him to help us in the tasks that he's assigned. Father, thank you again. For this Lord's Day and then for what we celebrate in what we call Mother's Day. We thank you for these dear ladies, those that are mothers, those that are not. All of us, though, called to reflect your image back to you in the roles that you've assigned to us. Well, Lord, forgive me. Forgive us of our sinful activism. The idea that I can accomplish the work that you've assigned without your constant aid. Lord, forgive us of not finding rest for our souls in the one who has accomplished the most important work in the universe and who has therefore made us accepted before you in him and declared us righteous even though we are not. Lord, may we contemplate the beauty of the gospel in all of our weariness and thus find the rest that only you can provide. And I pray that especially for these dear ladies. Help them to see their to-do list as simply a a, a journey in gratitude, grateful for what you have done and what you have assigned, and then what they are not able to do, and then what they are not able to do as well as they would like. Lord, help, help them always to reflect on the success that Jesus Christ accomplished in his life and death on the cross and turn over their to-do list to you. We pray this and ask this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.